Welcome to the Queen Trail Podcast. Meditation doesn't have to be sitting still and having an empty mind. The journey is such a beautiful thing because we are all on a journey. You want to make sure you have some kind of distribution plan, or at least have an idea of it, because you can make this really amazing film and it only gets seen by your family and friends. Old Hollywood is still intact. Every horse runs hard, but when they win, and they know it. They've got this little sass about them. It was pretty rough. I had to go into the water and with my med pack, swim to the beach, treat these guys, put them on my back, swim out to the helo. And I'm like, oh my God, I've never seen those before. And I said, what are those? And before I could even finish the sentence, she said, oh my God, you didn't touch them, did you? Even if monarchs go away and we never see one again, because there never will be monarchs again if they die out, it is just a little indicator of larger threats my dad said, so what were you guys doing in the desert? I said, we were taking nude photos. Hey everyone, welcome back. I hope you had a great week since the last time that we got together. I have a really fun episode this week. At least it was a lot of fun for me to record it, and I hope it's a lot of fun for you to listen to. It is with my dear friend, Matt McDonald who is a sommelier, a writer, world traveler, outdoorsman, photographer, retired Marine. He is the absolute Renaissance man. And we cover a lot of subjects. We talk about wine and spirits, of course, the writing process, his extraordinary books, which are linked in the show notes, our script that we worked on and its connection to ancient Rome films. And there's even wild animals that we talk about our experiences with uh, running into animals in the wild. It's just jam packed full of a lot of things. So I'm just going to go ahead and get right into it. So please grab a cuppa and join Matt and me in this week's In the Company of Friends Talk. Enjoy. I could see your uh, the line there, the recording line was moving. Uh-huh. Mine was flat. I'm like, hmm, I don't know if that's how it's supposed to be. Oh no, I see little bumps. Little bumps there. Yes, yeah. So it's perfect. And then I can pause this at any time. And of course, I'm gonna be editing out this whole beginning part anyway. So all this good stuff. Wait a second. Yeah. Well, <laughs> I'm getting a chair right now. So. Okay. I'm telling you, as soon as I get all situated here, then the stuff's going to cut. Oh, if I had a picture, I could send you the bar. You'd like the bar down here. It's really cool. Oh, is this in your place or are you at yeah, the... Yeah, this is else, but it's, this is like my hangout in the basement. Oh, nice. So all the accoutrements and paraphernalia for the scotches and whiskeys. And then I have all the just random posters everywhere. And I have the walls covered with stickers. So there's probably a thousand different beer stickers and just random stickers just everywhere i'm gonna have to send you the queen trail podcast sticker <laughs> definitely definitely do that i'll send that over are you still collecting the fiend de monde oh that's the beer right uh-huh i thought you were collecting some of that i mean like it's been so long i can't believe it because i think the last time i saw you was 2013 2014 really is that long yeah that's crazy because uh, I feel like I've only been here a couple of years, but I was talking to someone the other day and like, when did you move here? I'm like, ah, a couple of years ago. I'm like, well, what year? I'm like, ah, 2016 maybe? I'm like, that's actually like seven years ago. I've been here in Indiana. Yeah. Yeah, so last time I saw you probably it was at that uh, Irish bar there, right? 
I'm guessing. Yeah, that would have been the last time. Well, maybe it was 2016, you know, but it, it seems like it's been a lot longer. And then you finished your sommelier license. Yeah, I got that out there and I was working at high time for a while uh, until I left, basically. Did you ever make it down to high time? Mm-mm, no. So it's, I would say, it's probably the world's greatest liquor store. You know, I'll take the Pepsi challenge on that one. It's down there in uh, Costa Mesa, <laughs> and it's, it's been around. It's a family business. It's been around for like 50 years, and they were there when Mondavi started, you know, and they were one of the first people to sell his stuff and Gergich and all those guys. They just would come and hang out there at the store, and it's a huge place, underground wine storage, you know, temperature controlled, and it's just a lot, a lot of fun. And so, yeah, I worked there for, I think, 15 years on the wine staff. Wow. It was a lot of fun. I can't believe I got paid for it. <laughs> what? Around here and try these wines and, and beers and whiskeys and bourbons and all right, sign me up. Yeah, I know. You always get the best job. I remember, and there were a couple of times I was going to go, you know, while you were still here in California. And for some reason or other, I never made it. So I'm glad you reminded me. I'll get over there. Um, when Matt and I would get together, so we're writing partners. I, I don't even know when we met. Like, was Sophie born yet? <laughs> Uh, she may have been really small. Uh, yeah, I think so. I think she was. Yeah, so she yep. might have been like two years old or something. So this would have been 2002 when we met. And every time that we got together to write, we would go to an Irish pub in Long Beach and have a Guinness while we wrote. So I've got a Guinness in my hand. And I have one as well. Yeah. Cheers. I'm trying to find something to make the clinky sound. Perfect breakfast beer. Uh, I can find some here for sure. Oh, Oh, it didn't work. I'll have to get a glass. I'll find one in a a second. We'll let you make the clinking because I'm in my studio and I don't have, I don't think I have any glass around, but cheers. Cheers. Salute. Salute. Prost. So yeah, I'm having my breakfast, and I think you're two hours ahead of me, right? Three hours. Oh, you're three hours. So right hours. now it's 1.50 here. Oh, okay. So this is a nice post-lunch drink. Yep. And Cameron, he's going to be stationed in Alabama for the next two years. Yeah, I just saw that. Well, flight school, right? Yep. Nice. He's going to flight school. He's going to become a warrant officer and starting up real soon here but when i go visit him that's a whole lot closer to indiana so i'll be able to come and see you oh yeah come by definitely we'll get together have some fun and get liquor out here to join us and get tom and the whole oh that would be great all these people you see on facebook and you can meet them in right right and tim as well i don't don't think we've ever met in person either Mm -hmm. he'd only been out to california a couple times usually when he come out we go camping and stuff i don't think he really hung out in newport beach where i was at yeah, I see him every day now because I, I work with him right now. And now that you mention it, I am on dog duty today, too, for his daughter's dog. She just got a Great Dane puppy. So it's, uh, I think, 40 or 50 pounds as a puppy right now. You go and let the dog <laughs> oh out God. here a couple hours. 40, 50-pound puppy. Oh, my God. <laughs> yeah. That's going to be fun when you open that door. He's been alone for a while. Oh, yeah. Brace yourself because she's going to just run right over you as soon as you get in there. Yeah, no, no doubt. So we'll see. I've actually never, I've never seen the dog. Oh, no, I did see it. She brought it into work one day and it's just runs around and does puppy stuff. But I think it's a lot bigger now. Oh, my God. So uh, when does this flight training start? He's already there. He got there a bit earlier than he expected to because he was driving to visit friends and stuff. 
And I think he just kind of allotted himself a little too much time. <laughs> but it's good, you know, because then he gets to kind of get the lay of the land and get a little bit familiarized with everything while he's there. And, you know, he can make sure that he's got everything he needs. Yep. So he actually starts the program like they start training in August. Uh huh. That's crazy. I was on a year and a half wait list for flight school and just hanging out on the beach in Pensacola. It was nuts. They get you down there and they're like, all right, your first flight will be. Well, then it was like a year later. Oh, year so. well, so. yeah. So they do start training him, but I think it's all schooling. And then it's the second because it's a two year program. So it's the second year. So it's probably the same as what you did. He's flying helicopters, right? I assume. They don't get to choose until the second year. So I know that he's interested in helicopters, but I guess there's also fixed wing. Uh, there's, the Army doesn't have many of those at all, really. I'm trying to think what they would fly fixed wing. They used to have a, uh, like a spotter plane, and uh, I think other transports are with the Air Force. So if I had to bet, I'm thinking he's flying helicopters. But, you know, you never know. I guess I'm so far out of it, I can't. It's been 20 years since I've been doing that, so. Yeah, when's the last time? Because you flew helicopters, right? Yeah, I flew helicopters and fixed wing with the Marines. Oh, you did both. Okay. Yeah, because it's different flight schools. So in the Navy, they start out on fixed wing. Everyone's a fixed mm-hmm. wing pilot. And then you from there, you go to helicopters. I think the Army, you start out with whatever you're doing, and that's just what you fly. But the, the Marines have a lot of fixed wing, and so does the uh, Navy. I don't think the army does. Yeah. So that's my guess. I've asked him a couple of times and he's like, well, here's all the stuff that they told us that we can pick from and I don't get to choose until the second year. So, um, so I'm not sure, but I think he is interested in the helicopters for sure. And, you know, the other day I, I uh, was driving to San Marcos. So we went past Camp Pendleton on the freeway and there was a ship way out there and a helicopter flying stuff between the beach and this uh, ship that was out there and traffic just stopped. We got to see the entire operation. I don't know if it was like, you know, just way too much traffic on the freeway or if everybody was stopped because they were watching this, but it was one of those boxier helicopters. I'm not really sure what it was. Did it have two rotors on top? I'm not sure if they fly those anymore. That's what I flew, a 46, but I think they shut those down because they're so old. Uh, it's probably a 53. Was it a big, giant helicopter? It was a big, giant one, and it had just the one rotor on top and then a rotor on the on the end, on the tail. Yeah, tail rotor. Uh, yeah, probably a CH-53 is what I'm yeah. guessing. They still fly those. And then, then now the Army has all these brand-new helicopters. He'll be flying some really fancy stuff compared to what my vacuum tube <laughs> technology I flew. <laughs> I'm not kidding. He's he's going to have stuff there, which didn't even exist when I was flying. Yes, and all that stuff. Technology's really come forward so much, you know, just all of the different things. It'll be like operating a computer. Yeah, exactly. It, with the you know, GPS in and of itself is a whole new deal. My son's doing the same. He's in Civil Air Patrol right now, but he's only 13. Mm-hmm. But he has a sim, and he's showing me all the sim stuff. And I'm like, I can fly the plane, but I don't know if I can go anywhere because it's all computerized. And, you know, autopilot and all these things, you put in waypoints, and, you know, it's just not something I'm familiar with. Yeah. What's he planning on doing? Uh, he wants to be an aeronautical engineer and go to Purdue or Boulder. Oh. Is his plan. And he wants to have his pilot license by the time he's 17 which is as early as he can get it, but he doesn't want to be a pilot for a living. 
Wow. But who knows? He's 13, so he could change his mind. But he's generally pretty level-headed, so he's probably going to do something along those lines. Maybe aviation business. I, I can see it. Those are some big goals for you know a 13-year-old already having these big goals. Like That is so awesome. I mean, he's so far ahead of the eight ball. Yeah, he's known this stuff for years, too. He had to wait till he's 11 to go in the Civil Air Patrol. And, you know, his sim... His sim's killer, and he built it. He built a computer and everything. I told him I wasn't going to mess with it, so got it built. Oh, wow. It's pretty cool. It's lifelike. I mean, you get in it, and it's screens on all sides, and you're flying. I can go fly over your house, and you you can go anywhere you want to, anywhere in the world. You fly around the pyramids and any plane you want, pretty much, and it looks real. It's scary. That's amazing. He did that all on his own? Yeah. I mean, he didn't go out and, like, earn the money to buy the stuff because I wanted the stuff because I was going to start flying the airplanes Mm -hmm. flying in. But uh, stuff showed up, and then he put it all together. I didn't do anything. It was a pain in the butt, too. Him and his ladies were working on a while for that. He just moved it in the basement, like, about a month ago. He had it in his room, but it's so big, he didn't have room for anything else. Oh, my God. That's amazing. What kind of, like, GPS system or, you know, like, in order to be able to get those views of the different parts of the world is it all like a bunch of different programs that are integrated yeah it's all part of microsoft flight simulator i think there's maybe there's two like top ones they're roughly the same they do the same thing but that one i believe it works with google maps okay it's dialed in that's amazing that's so cool yeah you know like whenever i'm talking to somebody about piloting and airplanes and all of that like i regret not having gotten my pilot's license when i could have when we had that cessna when i was growing up but oh yeah i just thought that we'd have that cessna forever and there'd always be time for and um i just never got around to it yeah that's a super rare thing to have your own plane i mean that's I don't have my own plane. I don't know. I, I know like one mm-hmm. guy does or two. Yeah. My yeah. dad had the Cessna and he had a glider also. And he just like, he stopped flying the glider because you kind of need to have somebody be able to drag you so that you can get up in the air. Um, but the Cessna, he flew for a really long time and he didn't sell it until like maybe 20 years ago. Oh, wow. Was it a 172, 152? I'm not sure what the number was. I know that it was called a Cetabria, which is aerobatics backwards. So it was an acrobatic plane. Oh, wow. And you could just pull that joystick back and do a backwards roll. And then he would take a straight up, kill the engine and go into a death spiral. And then he'd get the engine going again and pull out of that. And we just thought it was the greatest thing ever, you know. So he would let me fly it. And I wasn't racking up official hours at that time. I did fly it a few times and landed. I think the most difficult landing was on Catalina Island because it's got a really short runway. Oh, yeah. I've been out there a bunch of times. Yeah, it's uh, I've yeah. never landed a fixed being out there, though. There's always helicopters, which a lot easier. Yeah. Well, I keep remembering your story about the first time I think that you were flying your helicopter on your own and you almost ran out of gas and ended up landing on the, was it the USS Lincoln? Oh, that was, yeah, it was the Abraham Lincoln. Yeah, that was out in the Philippines. Yeah, we did. Almost, I forgot. See, I don't forget all about these stories. <laughs> yeah, the aircraft is only certified for daytime because there's an altitude hold function, which we didn't have going on. And then it turned to nighttime and someone had stalled a tractor over at like one of those big, I don't know what it was, some kind of something that pulls aircraft or moves something, but it's right there on the flight mm-hmm. deck on this little boat. So we couldn't land. So we sat there and waited for them to move it. And they're, they're having all kinds of problems. And yeah, we were almost out of gas and there was an aircraft carrier, you know, away. And uh, we 
flew over to that and you know it was it was sketchy you couldn't see anything the, the sky and the ocean looked the same as all this pitch black and we had to manually kind of control the altitude and you're all disoriented but just kind of focusing on the aircraft carrier and get over there and just kind of call in and you know i didn't know the procedures I said hey we need to land it's emergency They're like uh okay yeah. so that was that we landed on there and got some gas and flew back once they got the stuff cleared wow yeah i've been on that abraham lincoln just because of the port that's out here and it is a big big ship yeah it's giant i, I think at the time i mean this is god that was the 90s uh we we're out in philippines so yeah like 94 five ish or something like that so at the time whatever whatever i'm not 100 percent sure that's what it was but i think it was it was like pretty new but it, yeah i don't know there was any bigger at the time it was giant Wow. And then, you know, when you were talking about the ocean and the sky being the same color, it just reminds me of how dangerous that is, because there's so many accidents that have happened out here for the same reason, like a couple of weeks ago, I'm near the Torrance Airport. And I'm not sure if this kid was trying to land the plane there. And it was foggy conditions. Apparently, he tried to land the plane with other people aboard and wasn't able to miss the runway, didn't feel safe, and then came back around and tried to land. And that didn't work out, unfortunately, and everybody perished. But it's always those foggy conditions and not being able to tell where the sky is and where the land is. Yeah, no, that it sounds pretty sketchy. And out there, I mean, I've only really seen it out in California where they have this like low layer. It almost goes down to the ground and then it goes up a couple hundred feet and you can get out and VFR, which is visual flight rules, on top of it. But initially you're on the ground, you can't even see the tower. And if you're from there and you know what you're doing, they'll let you take off into the clouds, you know, VFR and just pull out on top. But if you're not familiar with that procedure, like a lot of these civilian guys are, I mean, it comes in low. I mean, and this, you never get down to the runway without getting out of the fog, really. Right. Yeah. No, we have like such a thick marine layer around here. And, you know, I, now that you mentioned that, I remember my dad always taking off and landing in that. And it was just no big deal because like you said, he was used to it. But, you know, now that I know a little bit more, it's like, wow, that is so dangerous. So I'm glad you made it onto the Abraham Lincoln. Yeah, that well, that one was just the perfectly clear night. It was just black. I mean, mm -hmm. it was just... I don't remember seeing any stars or anything. It was, just, it was like closing your eyes and flying and trying to look at your gauges and you know not having the altitude hold to help you. And it's just, you're just so disoriented and it feels like you're going up or you're going down. It's like, oh man. I mean, this didn't last more than a couple seconds. I think we did one turn away from the boat towards the aircraft carrier. And just during that one turn, you know, we have spotters in the back going, hey, you're descending, you know, climb, like level off and all this stuff. And then we got over there, and like I said, when we flew back off the aircraft carrier to our boat, which I think was the Bellawood, I can't remember now, but they came up next to it. We weren't going to fly back. All we did is just kind of slid to the side and landed because it was an emergency situation to get over there. So I never had to ship out of sight and never didn't have to make any turns or anything going back because otherwise we just shut down and stayed there. You know, yeah. Going back the next, but I don't know. I don't know what plans they had. Maybe they didn't want to set their entire schedule based on having this helicopter stuck on their boat, but I'm sure they didn't. So they probably right. wanted to get there. Right. Well, you know, I kept telling you you needed to write these stories down. <laughs> I think you, you would have a really great autobiography. Honestly, I'd forgotten all about that until you mentioned it. I had to think. I'm like, 
when did I run out of gas? I'm like, ah, that's, <laughs> I try not to, I mean, because that kind of sucks. But <laughs> Right, right. Well, I mean, yeah, I think that yeah, was really right. early that was, on. A, that was a problem. Yeah, we were hanging out there until we had no more fuel. We had to land somewhere. We were in the ocean. Yeah, that's funny. All of those crazy adventures that you used to tell me about. So speaking of that, it was always while we were writing and I'm kind of surrounded. Okay, well, it's two books that I have, but I thought I had a third book of yours, but I'm surrounded by your books. And I kind of wanted to talk about writing, the writing process, if you have any new books coming out. The ones that I have in my hand are the most recent one, An Angel's Share, which is just a masterpiece. I mean, the amount of research and... Well, that's pretty bold words there. It's, it's like, wow, what, you didn't see the earlier drafts, obviously, because they were terrible. No, well, we... So the way that we would write was I would write 10 pages of whatever I was writing and Matt would write 10 or submit 10 pages of whatever he was writing. And I remember half of this book. Oh, so that was one of the ones you saw. Okay. So I was wondering, because I guess I wrote that earlier, then I put it away for a long time. Then I got it back out and I was like, okay, I need to uh, kind of finish this. And so you had seen it during that part when I finished a rough version and you had seen that and give me edits and I'd put those in and everything. But I don't think you made it all the way through before I moved. And then, you know, I did some other stuff and then I went back to it and I was like, ah, oh, you know, I already have this done. It shouldn't be that hard to just, you know, edit it and get it finished. Man, it was, <laughs> it was, it was a much worse condition than I thought it was. Oh my gosh. And God, I don't know how many times I edited it. I mean, it was years just going through and I was so sick of that book by the time I was done. But, <laughs> but, but I did finally read and I was like, you know, I do like it now. And I really did not like it for a while just because the writing wasn't that great. But then, it, you know, go through it a hundred times editing, things tend to get better. Yeah, it's like sanding a rough piece of wood down until it's totally smooth with each yeah. edit, you know, like, I mean, honestly, it really is a masterpiece with the amount of research that you did, the authenticity of it. It's like, being in Spain and all of the mystery that's in here, you've got, I don't know, what are they like vampire angels? Oh yeah. I mean, it's all real. I mean, those, I don't know if you're familiar with Andorra that's full of vampires. I'm telling you. Is it? <laughs> I know you were there all the time. <laughs> I think, you know, my sister lives there yeah. and so I've been there a bunch of times and it's a really trippy country and there's some strange stuff going on there. I mean, it's like a little mini Switzerland, the country between Spain and France and, I usually get the response, there's no country between Spain and France. Ah, but there is. It's a little tiny one about the size of the town I live in now, 100,000 people. And they're Catalans, and their economy in the past was kind of like uh, just commerce because tax-free stuff. And now it's more banking for the same reasons and skiing. So it's like a little oasis out there in the mountains. Amazing. And those guys have been around. They have history going back thousands of years. The Cathars are around there. And uh Telling you, if I was a vampire, that's where, <laughs> that's where you'd go and hang out. Uh, yeah, it's, <laughs> I had to throw it in there. Well, I remember you telling me when she had just moved out there and she had learned how to speak Spanish really well. And then she got there and it was like, they don't speak yeah. Spanish here. You're absolutely right. Yeah, the, <laughs> you know, it's, they can understand it, but no one speaks Spanish like at home. And, you know, they speak Catalan. She's, 
didn't know with the Spanish that she spent all the time with and just not doing a whole lot of good. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. So, but she now, since then, she now speaks Catalan. And uh, she finally did get her driver's license because the way it works over there, they're not giving the driver's test in any other language. It's not like, you know, oh, we'll give it to you in French or English or whatever like that. It's like, you don't speak Catalan? All right. Well, learn it. Then come back and see us. Oh and so she had to pass the test and do the driving test and the written test and everything in Catalan before she could drive. And so that took a while. Wow. And how is driving over there? We were just talking to some friends of ours about the driving in Costa Rica, which is frightening. I was going to rent a car when we went out there and my cousins convinced us not to do that. They're like, we'll drive you around everywhere. So my cousin Victor came and picked us up at the airport and it was like totally normal. It was like driving out of uh, maybe Long Beach airport because LAX is too crazy. It wasn't even nearly as crazy as LAX. And then you get onto the highway and it's complete chaos people are just like on top of each other everybody uses the horn to communicate for everything like oh you can go ahead honk honk or get out of my way honk you know, you're just like yeah. or like thank you dun, dun, dun. You know, yeah that's all you hear is these horns there's people standing on the dotted line that divides the lanes selling stuff bicycles come on there and it was just like complete insanity. So uh, I'm always interested in hearing what driving is like in other countries. I would say Andorra, it's not bad at all. Spain, easy. That's just like here, I think. It's, the only problem with Andorra is it's like a big loop because it's in a valley. Mm -hmm. And if you miss a turn, you might just be going all the way around the entire valley to get back to where <laughs> you're going because it does get complicated and parking's a pain in the butt because there's no room because the mountains kind of keep you in there and go so far in one direction it's like you just you can't do anything so parking's at a premium and kind of the only way to get up there though there's no train stations there's no airports really i think they built a small tiny one for private planes so you can take a bus out of barcelona or from toulouse but yeah there it's isolated up there so you really do need to be able to drive yeah i mean once you get there you can walk everywhere so you just need to get there but but there's a lot of cool stuff and all those cathar sites and if you ever get a chance, I would look into those guys. I think I mentioned a little bit in Angel Share, mm -hmm. but it really had nothing to do with that book. It's I, I just kind of a hobby I was researching out in California, and those guys are pretty interesting. It was like the first crusade, and they're a, an offshoot Catholic religion, and out there in that area, man, there's it's pretty trippy. They call like their bishops perfects, and they have different beliefs, and that's why kind of they were crusaded against because they were an offshoot that was kind of spreading. Wow. Yeah, I do remember that being in here. It, it's so vivid and just an excellent story. You've got John Cole in here, who's a former Navy chaplain, and um, he ends up meeting up with Victor. He's very mysterious, and it's not until he ends up in Spain or Andorra where we find out what the whole oh yeah the whole angel connection to to humans yeah just an amazing book you can get it on amazon it's called an angel share by matthew mcdonald and then the other one that i've got is among the ashes which is set in belgium 
I think it's uh, yeah. World War One, Belgium, and there's a lieutenant who is trying to save a woman that is arrested at one point, I think, by the Nazis. And it's well, it was the German. It was before the Nazis. It was uh, just the, the German army, basically, for because it's World War One. Yeah, and pretty much the whole book set pretty constrained. It's all right there in Leuven or Louvain from beginning to end, and it the time frame isn't super long kind of that uh, initial push in the war when they got there and kind of the the basis would grab my attention for that one was I was just reading in some history book about World War One and just talked about the mystery of Leuven or Louvain, depending whether you do the French or how you pronounce it. Uh, they never knew what happened and they still don't. I mean they it's I have my idea what possibly happened and who knows. But the outcome was that there's this old library there which has like 12th, 13th century manuscripts and stuff and all these relics and stuff. And the, and the town is just absolutely beautiful and just got burnt to the ground. Mm. Uh, and, this is, and they weren't fighting. The armies had retreated. They, you know, surrendered. And so the Germans came in. It's basically an army of occupation at that point. And stuff went south and no one really knows why. And like all stories, there's two sides to it. And depending who you're talking to, it, you know, they're saying they're, you know, the Belgians were resisting with snipers. They call them Frank tours and they were shooting off the soldiers. And so they retaliated and opposite view from the Belgians would be that they were just minding their own business. And the Germans went crazy, got drunk and burnt things down. Probably it's somewhere in between. That's kind of what I was going with. And that's kind of how I played it. And just from all the research and I walked the firing lines and stuff just to see where people could shoot and where they couldn't shoot and why this or that might happen. And yeah, I mean, not giving anything away because it's not really anything to give away, but it's, uh, uh, I think it was kind of a mistake on both sides to kick everything off. And at the end of it, they're both like, oh man, this happened. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of what happened. But ultimately it did change the entire course of the war for, for Germany because the neutral nations saw that as a rallying point and they now decided not to be neutral. I mean, for other reasons as well, but it kind of pushed, I mean, it was front page news across the world and people who are kind of trying to stay out of it, like the U S for example, like, well, you know, maybe we don't stay out of it. Yeah. Yeah. Those are the incidences that really make you take a closer look at, you know, if we don't get involved, where is this going to go to? And I think you did such a great job on that too. I mean, they're both very readable books and I'll put links to them in the show notes. Um, Did I? Did I have a third book? Is there a third book out that you... There's a bunch out. I honestly think those probably are two of the, two of the best. Mm-hmm. There's I have a couple wine books out. Uh, the Napa Fair, Catalan Sun. When I was writing, th- those are the first books I wrote. The Napa Fair, so that's the other one. Yeah, all set in Napa and Catalan Sun's all set in the wine country in Spain. And kind of the premise for both of those are... It's kind of mixing up just like a basic wine detective, which didn't really exist back then. Now I think there's other books that have wine-based detectives. And it's kind of a, not an advertisement, but it kind of just kind of showing the areas and how cool they are. If I was in charge of like commerce at Napa Valley or something like that, I'd like to have books along those lines and say, hey, read this. And this shows us how fun this is. And it's kind of designed with that in mm. mind. Pick out places that I liked and, you know, highlight them. Like, for example, the wine train and Gurgich and some of my favorite wineries and kind of mention some wines, which in hindsight, I probably talked about wine a little bit too much. And I think I kept vintages in there and stuff where at the time it seemed like a good idea because like hey these famous vintages were drinking well now 20 years later nope those probably aren't even drinkable a lot of them are oh. and so so it's like uh yeah i probably shouldn't have put the exact vintages in 
Well, it's some good history, at least, you know. And yeah, and again, is. those are really readable. I really enjoyed the Napa Fair one. Um, I don't think I read the Catalan one. I'll have to send that to you. I mean, they're both, I think they're, they're just fun. I mean, that's kind of lighthearted, fun, simple page turner is what I was shooting for. But there is a big backstory to all those, which doesn't even come out. So I had it designed to write like, I don't know, like 20 books if I needed to. And it still is. But the story for all these books go back to a great theft in World War II, which it, it's not even mentioned in either one of those books, except for kind of hinted to a couple times and different characters and stuff that was on the walls. Mm-hmm. And ultimately, where all this money that's kind of running Napa and, and Spain and stuff like that, and these characters, you know, where do they get it? And that's kind of what it goes to. But I don't know if I'll ever get to those books, honestly. It's, it's a lot of books to write. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, I don't, there's not enough time. I need to meet up with someone who has a time machine or something. What uh, What was the theft? I can't. I'm, I can't say that one. That's the That's the big secret. Oh, that's the big secret. Okay. Okay. Yeah, because these are mysteries. Yeah. Oh, they're totally. It's a wine mystery. Is what they are. Yeah. But the theft isn't part of the mystery in either book, but it would be the driving force to the whole thing. And you know, maybe I'll do a book just about that. I don't know, but yeah, that's the top secret. Yeah. It's all based on, you know, facts. I mean, it's history. Well, that's where you get the best stories, right? Especially when there's a lot of shady gray areas that are not super clear. And then you can go, all right, well, I'm going to have this mystery go in this direction. Yep. That's my favorite. I love, I like the research more than the actual writing part. And I can just sit there and research all day, but I also feel like I should do something with it. But there's so many just interesting stories and situations throughout history that I've seen a couple of them, then I, you know, something totally different. Yeah, yeah. Well, you can totally go down a rabbit hole. And when we were writing our screenplay that um, we need to put out there after this writer's strike and... Hey, Jack Garcia, I I hear you. You know, we did so much research and that was a really interesting experience for me because I'd never written with a partner before. And so that was kind of cool. And then just um, agreeing on what the premise is and just really brainstorming, throwing a bunch of stuff out there and enjoying our Guinness at the same, like it was, it was so much fun writing that. that. I had a blast. (laughs) That was the best. Yeah. But there was a lot of research that went into that and I'm hoping we'll be able to get that out there at some point because I just think it's such a great story and it's a futuristic version of early Roman times. You know, there's characters similar to Nero and Britannicus and Leonidas and Agrippina. Agrippina. Yeah. The big player there. Agrippina. Yeah. She's so awesome. I was just at the Getty the other day and, um, um, I always have to go in and go, you know, take a look at Agrippina. And my kids are always like, I know, Mama, like, this is Agrippina. This story is really cool, too. Yeah, just her individual history, because I've read a lot more about her. And just in a National Geographic, just randomly, I had, there was like a 10-page uh, write-up on her. Wow. Recently? Yeah. Uh, well, I don't know. Someone gave me these, so I'm not sure how old they were, but I still have it. Because I, I still collect, anytime I see something that might relate to Ajax or the, in the history there, and mm-hmm. I always cut it out and put it in a little, a little folder. Because I think it's good. I mean, we finished it. It's a good story. And it's, I haven't really seen anything else out there like it. No, it's, we did a lot and just really um, poured ourselves into it. So, I mean, we had so much fun writing it. It was it did yeah, turn out exactly. to be a super, super good story. Um 
yeah, she was pretty intense. I wouldn't, I just think she's an amazing, amazing character in history, but I sure wouldn't have wanted to be anywhere near her during her living years because she was just incredibly dangerous. Like to be around Agrippina meant certain death pretty much for anybody. Yeah, you could have a rough time of it for sure. Yeah. And and uh, just the fact that she had to be so conniving and deadly just to make it as a woman in that time period and with all of the power that was around her and in order for her to become such a powerful person, um, Sophie's Bestie was over and we were watching a cooking show that um, I had to find out what it is, but they make these old recipes and they found an ancient recipe for pizza from Nero and Agrippina's time. And it was really disgusting, but I really want to try it anyway. Part of it was, it was fermented fish that they put on top of there. And, Oh, I know what that is. Uh, What are they? I can't remember the name offhand though. I have, I have a cookbook that talks about that. Mm -hmm. What is the name? Is it day Ray cookbook or something like that? That old Roman one. I don't know what it is. So they made some of this. They got like a ton of sardines or whatever it was and put it inside of a vessel and filled it with water and let it just sit. And like, you could tell they were disgusted by the odor. And I was just like, Oh my God, I don't know. This looks a little dangerous, but they made it and they were like, this actually tastes good after, you know, after you cook it and if you can get past that fish. And I thought, I really want to try this pizza. I might do it. I don't know. (laughs) I think it's good. I like uh, fish sauce and, it's just kind of weird on a pizza, though. Yeah. And then the crust, you know, they had to grind down the actual grains. And so it was it was just a very sturdy crust. Um, I don't remember exactly what it was, but we were watching it. And I, I was like, I need to write this down because one of these days I'm going to be fermenting some fish. And then I mentioned Agrippina and Alexa had never heard of her. And I'm like, oh, man, you got to look her up. So she just did a Wikipedia search and she was like, what? Why aren't there more movies about this lady? <laughs> like, I've never heard of her. It should be the daughter of an emperor, wife and mother, I think. And there's a bunch of other crazy stuff. I mean, yeah, Germanicus. Just, no else like her, really. It's like amazing. Yes. That sounds like a fresh <laughs> yep. Guinness to me. Exactly, though. <laughs> well, I got the bottle. I saw the cans and I was like, No, this feels a little more like when we were at the pub for some reason. I don't know if there's much of a difference between a bottle versus a can. There's a couple of different models. So the can is just their basic draft, and you can get the draft in a bottle. You'll know because it kind of pops, and there's there's a uh, nitrogen thing in there. Mm -hmm. And there's two other versions they offer. There's the foreign extra, which is hard to find. It's it's like orange-yellowish, and you don't see that very often. Every now and again, especially around St. Paddy's Day, they'll have it. But it's 7.5% and it's a little sweeter, a lot heavier. Then there's like the regular extra stout and that, that's one you'll see. And that's a lot more bitter and higher alcohol. But just the ones we were drinking there is, is the basic draft. Yeah, I did see the, the last one that you said. You probably have the draft, I'm guessing. I did. I purposely grabbed the draft. I did mm-hmm. see. Um, no, I didn't see that orange one, but you said there was another one that was like... Yeah, that's just the regular extra stout. 
extra and stout. Yeah, that's what that's I saw you there. Probably see, uh, I really like that one too. Oh, that's, that's, I drink that one a lot, but it's it's a whole different kind of mouthfeel, and it's it's a little heartier, but it's good. Really, I'm gonna have to try it. You know, it's it's my breakfast today. <laughs> it's yep. just it's such a filling beer, but it's got that wonderful molasses like yep. viscousy creaminess, creaminess, yeah, goodness, roastiness, and yeah, it's. I'm with you on that one. It's one of the few beers, which I know people drink beers at different temperatures, but I generally like them cold. I can drink Guinness warm. It's awesome. It's not a problem whatsoever. Really? Yeah, it's totally drinkable. So if I was going to go bring a beer, because pretty much any other beer I'd like to have cold and some are just absolutely horrible warm. Guinness is doable though, because you're just drinking the molasses roastiness and pull it off. Yeah. You know, I really like nitrous cold brew coffee on its own mm-hmm. and it often reminds me of a guinness without mm-hmm. the alcohol yeah a lot of similar characteristics yeah Absolutely. i think guinness now is one of the top beers in the u.s I saw some study i didn't really open all the way i just read the headline but it's doing very well really that surprises me because it is such a big beer you know like this is so filling and i mean it was what we drank when we went to the pub. and Yep, we had it with some fried fish and fries and all kinds of stuff. Yeah. Sandwiches, Rubens. Right, and those pot pies. and. Oh, yeah, that's right. I don't remember what else he had. We kind of like went through that whole menu, and it was KC Brannigan's. Oh, yeah, that's what it was. It's a great pub on 2nd Street in Long Beach. If anybody wants to check it out, I'll put it in the show notes as well. That is Matt and Sill's Writing Pub. <laughs> we were there once a week, maybe twice a week, mm-hmm. you know, sometimes. For many years. For many years. I mean. And if, if I moved back there, I'd go be right back there. Right. And we were kind of regulars for a while there. Yeah. Yeah, good stuff. I'm. I pulled up the menu. I'm just sitting. Boxties. That's what they call them. Boxty dishes. Oh yeah. It's a traditional Irish potato pancake, stuffed with an assortment of fillings, always with a Guinness. Absolutely. So, what are you working on now, writing wise? So right now, and it's it's a big pain in the butt. It's a book. It's set in World War One as well, but the latter parts of it, it's. I know people's eyes tend to glaze over when I try to explain it because there's a lot going on. So I try to <laughs> super, super simple and short because that's probably what I would want if I wasn't like immersed in this. There's this Czechoslovakian, or before there was a, it was part of Austria at the time, but it was Bohemia, whatever you want to call it. It eventually became Czech Republic, Czechoslovakia. But anyway, all these Czechs, these Bohemians fighting for the Austrians, World War One, and ended up in Russia. They ended up fighting for Russia against the Austrians. And then the Russian Revolution came, and they're all kind of stuck there. They're also the only functioning army there outside of the nascent Red Army. And so they needed to get out of there, and they couldn't get back home going west because the Germans, they had to go all the way across Russia to the east and go around the entire world to get back to their homeland. And that's pretty much what they did, fighting the whole way. And in the midst of all that, they basically took over the entire Trans-Siberian Railway there. And were also involved with the uh, whites and reds as far as the the white army in the U.S., Britain, and all those guys, how they kind of had their hands in Russia during that time. They were kind of their arm there. So it was crazy. I never even knew it happened until I stumbled across something about it at the time. It was a huge story, and 
Wow. The research is just exhaustive because it's, I mean, Russia's a big place. I mean, I look at the map, I'm like, oh, that's pretty big. Then I realize I'm only looking at the kind of the European part of it. I'm opening all the way up. I'm like, oh my God, this thing's insane how big it is. Wow. And it covers the entire country, you know, Ukraine. And Ukraine plays a huge part of this. And, you know, coincidentally with what's going on now, it's some lost us very, very, very similar. Yeah, I was just going to say, you know, that's one of the interesting things about these historical books, whether they're fiction or nonfiction, it's just how it gives you a reference point to what's going on now. You're about a quarter of the way through the book, so it's going to be a while before it's out. Now it's forever. <laughs> I mean, I write a little bit each day about it, but it's I'm going backwards, I think. But the research, I mean, I know what's happening. The research is all done. I know, except for like each individual chapter, I mean, I have everything's outlined. It's taken me, I don't know, 50,000 words maybe. And so it's, the story hasn't started yet. So I'm not super happy that how complex it's becoming, but it's fun. Yeah. And that can happen. I know I've got a drawer full of unfinished projects (laughs) that I keep telling myself I'm going to get back to. And like, you know, you were talking earlier about an angel share where, you know, you set it down for so long. Yeah, for sure. You know, you pick it back up, you're in a totally different frame of mind, a different place in your life. It's hard to pick it up and continue with the same focus that you had however many years ago it was and inject that in again. So it does end up becoming a completely different book because now you're looking at it and you're like, no, I'm going to change all of this. And, you know, your story keeps morphing over time, especially big projects like what you're doing, you know, like it looks one way right now, but it's still going to be the same story. It's just going to be a little bit different by the time that you're done. Yep. What I need is like a year just to focus on it, but I don't think I have that focus anymore where I can just hang out and just write all day. I'm kind of at the level, uh, maybe a two hour day writing is kind of what I'm shooting for. That's Mm -hmm. my goal. And that, I don't generally hit it. But when back in the day, I could write, you know, all day and just that's just what I do. Right. So it's, it's not going to be a fast process, regardless. It's funny how you change like that. Yeah, it's like I just don't have the desire to, you know, spin all I, Like, I'd rather be out fishing or do something <laughs> else. I'm like, you know, that's like, or, or reading or whatever. It's like sitting in a room and writing isn't always the funnest thing in the world. Yeah, it's been a while since I've just sat down and I was just talking with Sophie about that where, um, oh, the episode that's up right now, and it was a list with Sophie, we just find random questions on the internet. And one of the questions was, if you didn't need to sleep, if it was not a necessity or essential to your well being, what would you do with that extra time? And we went on this long tangent about it. But one of the things I said about sleep being a burden was when I was writing all the time and I would write until like three o'clock or three thirty in the morning. And I'd be like, I can get away with two hours of sleep. I can get away with two hours. So, you know, and it was like, it was such a burden that I'd have to stop because I was so tired. I was making mistakes, but I had all of this stuff in my head that I needed to get out. And now I'm like, Oh, yeah, I'll just pick it up in the morning. <laughs> yep. So you, you were kind of on the opposite schedule. So I would occasionally, well, for like a year, I would get up at like three you know, or two and then write all the way in the morning. And then kids would wake up and stuff like that. I have to deal with that because I was never very good at writing at night. I don't know why. I just never. I 
feel like after it's five o'clock, I'm like, I don't want to use my brain or anything. I just want to kick back and maybe watch a movie or, you know, drink a beer. <laughs> so I, I had a hard time writing at night. And the times I would do it, I'd think it was really great. And I'd look at the next day. I'm like, what was I thinking? <laughs> That's Man, hilarious. I, like, <laughs> I really thought this was awesome, but it's not. <laughs> I don't know. It's, uh, I don't know. I, I had a hard time with it. So as you were going to sleep, I was waking up. Yeah. When we were like, serious writing. Yeah. You know, and I was working. So I'd get home at three or three thirty and it was like make dinner and I would just go in and write from like four, four thirty until three thirty in the morning. So it was, you know, it was almost twelve hours of writing. And I think you probably did the same thing and it was just Yeah, it's a lot of work. It's a lot of work, but it was a lot of fun for me, you know, and I just, I keep going, man, where did that muse go? Like, I just need to find her again. And <laughs> do another thing, that's the way it's like, now you're doing the podcast and other creative endeavors and the movies and stuff like that. So it's always there. It's just redirected. Right. That's true. Are you still doing photography? Uh, not much at all, honestly. I mean, it's, it's, it's so easy and there's so many pictures out there now. I, I just use my cell phone, honestly. Mm-hmm. And uh, I don't, can't even think the last time I got my cameras out, my big cameras, and, and tried some serious stuff. Yeah. This past winter, it was so cold and snowy. We literally had the California Rockies over here. It was, it was pretty incredible. And my cell phone wouldn't capture the detail or any of that. So I did pull out the big camera, went out there and took some really amazing photos and they never made it anywhere. They're still on the camera because it's, you know, so many steps you have to go through to download it off of your regular camera with your phone. You, it's just right there and you can, you got it. Photoshop and all that stuff. And you have to go through each picture and pick the ones you want. Mm -hmm. So easy now to take a thousand pictures where, before when I was more seriously into it, I was doing the uh, infrared photography with film. Mm. That stuff, I mean, because it's a pain to the butt to develop that. You're careful with every single shot, and even then, it may not show up. And so now it's it's hard to replicate that. Well, maybe maybe now I'm behind in the technology in there, so maybe there is a way you can just do a filter for infrared to get it close, but. I think that'd be hard to do because it's a, just use it differently and it's not just changing contrast and stuff it's a whole different like image so you could probably get close though nowadays you could and there are a lot of different apps where you can just upload a regular photo that you've taken and convert it to you know something that looks like infrared or you know passes close enough you know if you're not a pro on it you know for the people that are going to see it they're like oh that's cool and you know move on to the next thing we've just uh, the world has really changed so much for a lot of these visual arts and then you know like we were recently talking about ai and um just being able to do so much with that as well i mean it's if you know what ai looks like you know you can pick it out really easily but uh, I think it's going to refine a whole lot more and, and just be really indistinguishable from regular photography. I've seen some photos where, you know, you just, you put in the prompt and it's like, uh, show me a black leopard in the jungle and flashing yellow eyes, Oh wow! greenery, etc. 
And then they'll put whatever was generated by the AI next to a National Geographic photographer's photo. And you can't tell which one was computer generated. And so oh, man. it's yeah. going to be an interesting future, you know, how much of it is going to be real or, you know, how many imaginary worlds are going to be created through this that, that look realistic, but don't actually exist. Yeah. All these people out now taking like selfies everywhere and, you know, and but really in about another year or two, you won't. You'll get the same pictures with sitting at home. Take a picture and say, hey, uh, set me in front of a pyramid. And that's where you'll be. And no one would know the difference. Right. So what you're probably, what it seems like you're going to have is a bunch of teenagers sitting around in like empty rooms taking selfies rather than going places. Just kind of telling the AI where to put them. Maybe not, though. Uh, I think you might be onto something. Because <laughs> <laughs> it's all about the perception. So at least that's what it seems like. I'm dealing with teenagers all the time now with Amanda and nieces and Tim's kids and they're all different. But in that world, it's what people see, what they like and having that uh, input, that feedback on whatever you put out there. Mm -hmm. And I'm sure there's some of that going on already. And um, Mm -hmm. it just reminds me there was a film quite a while back. It was called Surrogates with Bruce Willis. Everybody had a, Basically, it was an AI-generated persona. It was very futuristic and kind of accurate. Uh, Everybody was sitting in their home with these, like, AR lenses, and they would create avatars of themselves and live their lives just seated on a couch. And It's been a while since I've seen it, but it's kind of what you're talking about. I'm writing that down right, right as you're speaking. Surrogates. I also found out I have no idea how to spell surrogates. S-U-R-R-O-G-A-T-E-S. Whoa. I know. <laughs> There's so many words where it's like, wait, really? You spell it like that? <laughs> I actually had to look it up and I put one R down. So I'm cheating. <laughs> yeah. Hey, you're close. I could, mine was so far off the computer would even correct it. <laughs> That's how I get the movies to watch. Yeah. You know, I don't know if it's great or not. It's been so long since I've seen it. I just know that it's stuck in my head because of various images and the whole idea, which was really interesting then. And and it's funny because these things have kind of come to pass. You know, we have the AR lenses. We have that Facebook Oculus and virtual realities and, you know, the whole idea of trying to get the meta world going, which I think that just has fallen flat and is not going to happen. But I don't think that means that it's going to keep people from trying to create these alternate universes that uh, we can live in, you know, because society, it's just, it's just hard to live. Life is, life is difficult. Like I remember watching the first season of Alone and there's this guy named Alan Kay, I think is his name. He was the winner of that first season And he said something about, you know, when man tries to, man versus nature, when you go against nature, you're just going to die because nature doesn't care. And then he said something like, but there's spaces, there's spaces in there where if you get into that space, it allows you to coexist and live. And I just feel like that's 
kind of the definition of life, you know, like life is hard, but if you find the good spaces in between, you're going from, you know, one difficulty to the next, there is that breath in between, you can have a pretty good life, you can get comfortable. Oh, yeah, no, it's, uh, yeah, nature. It's funny when you said that, I don't know if this relates or not, but when you said, he talks about, you know, nature, you're just going to die if you come across it in the wrong way. Mm-hmm. The images popped to my mind right then was, I don't know if you've ever been to the zoo down in Irvine. It's like a small zoo. I would take the kids there and they're super young. Mm-hmm. And it's not fancy or anything. There's like a train and stuff like that. But they had one display and it was this, of these two mountain lions and they kind of cruise around there and there's a chain link fence and you go right up to it. I mean, it's, there's like a, a little rope, maybe it's like three feet from the chain link fence, which goes up maybe like 10, 15, 20 feet, whatever. I don't know. But these mountain lions are kind of cruising there and you're like, yeah, you know, you see on movies and people run and, you know, like the rock or whoever's finding animals or running from animals. And you're like, yeah, you know, people are, we're, we're pretty savvy. We, we can probably have a fighting chance against some of these cats. They uh, came out one time, the caretakers, they were uh, having them take injections and taking measurements and, you know, doing all that stuff. And the way they had them trained was they come up there, they tap this thing on the chain link fence. These cats or these uh, mountain lions would jump up on the chain link fence so their body's like stretched out and they hold on you know top and bottom and they could go and they could touch the pole and they could check things and do all that then they get rewarded and go down the first time i saw that they're just kind of shambling around and look like kind of big slowish cats i'm like yeah you know i can see that and as soon as they tap that fence those things took off with a half a second they leaped through the air and they were on this fence like a foot from me and i had i couldn't even blink i was like oh my god and they're right there, and they're huge. I mean, I was like, you know, if I encounter one of those things in the woods, there's, no matter what I think or how fast or how much I train or whatever, you have a second. And then there's no there's no competition. You're not competition for them. You may think you are, but mm-hmm. you're out there with these things. They're so fast and so deadly. They're like sharks on land. And I'm sure there's other, like, like lions and tigers. I don't know if they're the same way as mountain lions, but... Just seeing them in action that quick, as like kind of humbled by nature. Anyway, that's just what the image that popped to mind when you said that about yeah. nature, and you know when you cross it, you may not may not survive. You might not. Yeah. No. Totally. I know that is really frightening. I went hiking one time in uh, Yosemite, and we got off the trail. I was with uh, one of my girlfriends and we just got to chatting. And before we knew it, we were not where we were supposed to be. And (laughs) we ended up running into a California brown bear that I'm sure heard us coming, but there was a felled tree and it was like pulling the bark up to grab grubs underneath. And it just kind of let us walk by. I I can't, imagine that it did not know we were coming but it was quite happy with the grubs and um (laughs) we didn't notice until we had gotten over on the other side of it actually and it was like uh yeah we can't go back so we have to keep going yeah and we ended up on the side of this cliff with this very narrow it was probably two and a half or three feet wide and it wasn't very long but we were hanging on to these tree roots that were coming through the wall of the cliff and looking straight down into the valley. Bridal Veil Falls was directly across from us. It was definitely not the beaten path. It was 
dangerous, but we did it. And, you know, we figured, well, if we get on the other side of this, there's no way this is too narrow, that bear's not going to follow us. And we did. And then, you know, we sat down and had lunch and had the most glorious view of this waterfall and all of the rainbows the mist was making. And so it was good to kind of be lost because it was a view that probably most people never have. Um, and a great story, you know, with yep. <laughs> how often do you run into bears that just kind of let you walk by. Um, and we were almost done with lunch. And there were a couple of other hikers that came through these two guys. I remember I remember the one guy had an Irish accent, which is perfect. I'm telling the story while I'm having a Guinness. And he did take a picture of this bear. And he's like, did you girls see that bear over there? And we're like, um, yeah, <laughs> or like, let's go, you know, but they said the same thing. I guess it was still eating the grubs and they didn't feel like they were in any real danger. Yeah, once they run out of grubs, though, then then what does the bear do? Yeah, it might have been like, you know what? That was an appetizer, but you look like a good meal. <laughs> I can tell you some Tom Metter stories about bears out in uh, Sequoia. Uh-huh. Uh, we are out camping out there, and you know, he's always trying to find bears because he was even taking pictures back then. And I'm hanging out there. I'm looking over there, and there's this giant bear, like, I don't know, 20 feet away, just kind of shambling into the uh, the campsite. I'm like, dude, you're looking for a bear. There's one right over there. He's like, what? Shut up. Like, dude, turn around. There's a bear right behind you. He's like, stop screwing with me. And he was laughing. I'm like, all right. He looked around. He's like, oh, my God, this, it's right there. And he went, bang, and grabbed his camera. He's trying to get pictures of this bear. And people are all starting to gather around. And, oh, my God. Did the bear run away? I mean, like, were you guys scared of it at all? No, it, there was, wasn't that impression at all. He was there. This was not way out in the middle of anywhere. I mean, it was in the middle of the forest, but... Maybe it's, what's the, what's the one right next to Sequoia's? King's Canyon? I think it was King's Canyon. It was, it was one of those two. It was the one that I don't frequent as much, or I didn't. And, but yeah, no, it was within like the campground area, but it caused a commotion, but it didn't look like it was looking for anything in particular. It was kind of wandering around, but it was a big brown bear. It was huge. And oh was my just, God. Tom, yeah, was, was kind of looking, going after it. I was kind of, I was kind of watching Tom. I was going to get a picture of bear eating tom tom was trying to get a picture of the bear. <laughs> oh so i was like God. we're gonna get a good picture of one way or the other here so I, he, he was closer to the bear anyway so i'm like i don't, I don't have to worry about it because you know the bear's gonna get him before he gets to me oh so, my god oh so, you know so it, it you know he survived and, and like i said you talked to him so right right so there's proof that he did not get eaten i have a couple bear stories that's not the only one yeah was this while you were with him, the, the, the other story? Yeah, the other one, we were in Yosemite as well. And I, this one's kind of getting kind of hazy because we're up all night and then crashed out. And I guess there was a bear or a couple bears were kind of rummaging through a campsite. And so the rangers were out there. And so he got up and trying to go chase them. And it was, but it was like two in the morning or three. <laughs> and so he was out there trying to get pictures. And I woke up for a little bit, went out there. I'm like, I'm going back to bed chasing a bear because you know <laughs> if you do what i mean it's the bears if it doesn't want to be seen you're not gonna see it so i don't know if right gonna... or it might just turn around and hit you with its giant claws and yeah. you're definitely not gonna see it i went to bed it's three in the morning we've been up you know we just went to bed a couple hours before that so it's like okay and there's there's more bear stories than that came from too. Oh my god, that's so funny. I'm I'm like note to self: do not go camping with Matt. He'll let the bear eat you. 
My other animal experience was I was at, um, gosh, what was that? It might be like George Strauss Canyon. And I'm walking along the trail. And, you know, when you go hiking with me, there's a million stops. I usually just tell people, just go ahead because I need to take pictures of everything. And you still like the insects? Yes. Yep. Insects. Uh, the weirder they are. The other day, I was hiking with my girlfriends through Red Rock Canyon, and there was this bug on the ground. And it, you know, like maybe the size of a nickel, I'm going to say in diameter, slightly larger than a nickel. And it was very fuzzy. And I'm like, don't touch it. Because they're all like, what is that? I'm like, that is a velvet ant, which is a wingless wasp. And you will wish you had died when it stings you like do not touch it. So those are always really interesting. Like, you know, so I guess because I love bugs so much, it's, it's good to go with me because I will tell you. You'll tell what to touch and what not to. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Don't touch. Do not touch the velvet ants um, or the tarantula hawks. Tarantula hawk. Oh, you don't know about tarantula hawks. I do not. Oh my God. They are, okay, well, first of all, they're such a beautifully evil creature. (laughs) They are really big wasps. Um, I'm going to say like maybe two inches. They have these really huge wings. They're all black, but when they spread their wings, they're red underneath. So they're like the Louboutin. The stilettos of the air. Yes, nature's Louboutins. Um, And when the female's ready to lay her eggs, she goes out and finds a tarantula. So they're indigenous to desert areas. You see them all over New Mexico and Arizona. And I've actually seen them in my backyard. So they are here in California as well. And uh, they tend to leave people alone unless you go and mess with them. But they will, that female will capture a tarantula and sting it, which paralyzes the tarantula and then she lays her eggs in the tarantula and drags it to a lair when her when those larvae hatch they eat the tarantula from the extremities in saving the heart for last so that the meat stays fresh oh my god that's crazy right right that is like complete insanity it's just I hope that there are not a lot of nerve endings for this poor tarantula, but no matter what, it's a terrible demise. I feel like that needs to be in a story now. It needs to it needs to be in a story. It's just like Can you look at an Ajax somewhere. <laughs> yeah. Or, or you know, like change it from a tarantula to something else, a human being or something. That would be horrible. <laughs> Man, horror movie just waiting to be written. It is. It is. We need to write a horror story together. But I was out there in, you know, this oh, Peter Strauss. That's what it is. Peter Strauss Canyon. And there was a columbine and it was so beautiful, just by itself, growing tall. And I'm like, oh, let me take a picture of this beautiful columbine. And as I was rising back up to join everybody, this deer ran down the hill and jumped over the top of me and its hooves hit my hair, just my hair. (laughs) I was like, 
That's oh crazy. my god, I almost died. <laughs> like Bambi almost killed me. <laughs> Can you imagine if like if you did then you're like hanging out in the afterlife and like so how'd you die? Well, long story. <laughs> Uh, a deer killed me. A deer uh, killed me because I was taking a picture of a columbine. They're like, it's like, <laughs> not a thing. You can't be killed by a deer. Like, oh, no, yes, you can. Yeah. And, and I think that uh, there is a really high number of deer-related deaths. I mean, definitely way more than shark-related deaths. I don't remember, you know, what the numbers are, but I know the deer are dangerous. People just get killed by them. So, you know, I almost became a statistic. <laughs> I'm glad you didn't, because, yeah, know, what a made an interesting story there. Yeah. So, deer. It's like a children's horror story. Yeah. <laughs> Bambi gone rogue. Yeah, I know. The kids will never look at it the same way again. Like, oh, I don't want to go. This might be a deer out there. <laughs> what? I'm not going outside. You know, it's a sad story already. You know, Bambi saw his mother get killed, I think, or the father, both of them. I don't remember exactly yeah. what the story is, you know. And and so here's this emo Barbie. It, I keep <laughs> saying Barbie because Sophie, Sophie went to go watch the Barbie movie with her girlfriends. But I could just see, you know, this emo story of Bambi growing up despondent and angry and ready to kill any human being that comes into the forest like cocaine bear with a different motivator yes yeah definitely you, you cocaine bear i watched the trailer and um it was funny because we went to the theater to see maverick and they had some of the cocaine bear folks out there giving out tickets like you know if you come back to the theater on this day at this time you can watch this but then you have to stay for about an hour afterwards because it was basically like surveying the audience to see what they thought of it and everybody loved it i was just wasn't available that day i just haven't taken the time to watch it did you love it oh yeah i saw it ian wanted to watch it because he'd never really been to a i don't know if you really call it a horror film but it's horror-ish he'd never mm-hmm. been before and i'm like okay we'll go see it so he, he kept, are you scared? Are you scared? Wait, I'm like, dude, I've seen horror movies before. This is not my first rodeo. You're the one who needs to worry about it. I do. <laughs> the whole time he kept telling me how he's not scared. And this, then I'm like, then why do you keep talking? <laughs> you tell me. Obviously. You keep looking at me and asking me questions. I'm just minding my own business watching the movie. <laughs> it's funny, but yeah. But, uh, you know, a couple of places I looked away and he's, he's like, oh, I kept my eyes open the whole time. Like, all right. <laughs> so he did. I, don't know, I looked away. And there was some crazy stuff in that. So, I don't, you know, certainly I can imagine I've seen it before. I'm like, I, yeah, I don't need to see this right now. I'm definitely going to have to check it out. That just reminded me of Reservoir Dogs. I oh, yeah. watched that, but I would walk away every time that cop scene came up. You know, it was like, I cannot watch this. I just can't. And it was probably... I haven't seen that for so long. I can't remember what that scene is. It's Michael Michael Madsen's character, Mr. Blonde, gets oh. the cop and, you know, puts him in the trunk of the car and then brings him into the warehouse and starts torturing him. And as soon okay, as... I remember that part. He's on the chair. He's in there? He's on the chair. Okay, I remember. That's what I was picturing. Okay, I didn't know that. Yes. And I just walk away. I just have walked away every single time. And it wasn't until maybe two years ago, I popped it in because I have the director's cut 
I love Quentin Tarantino so much. And I thought, I'm just going to watch it. I'm just going to watch it. I'm going to steal myself and watch this. And I think because I've seen it so many times, everything except for that little part, it wasn't as terrible as what had been going on in my mind of mm-hmm. what that scene was going to be. I mean, it's a bad scene. It is. There's like no two ways about it. It's it's a terrible scene, but it wasn't as terrible as what I had in my mind. And that kind of reminds me of Alfred Hitchcock would always say, you know, leave enough mystery in the script, in the film itself to allow the monsters that are in the audience's mind to fill in that space. And it was, you know, so it's always worse what you're thinking about than what anybody could have written. Yep. Good advice. I like it. Yeah. I'm going to go see Reservoir Dogs again. Trying to think, is that my favorite Quentin Tarantino film? Um, it's definitely up there. I th- I'm Paul Fiction Loy, but our uh, True Romance, I don't know if he was the director or writer, but I know he had something to do with, to do with oh, True yeah. Romance. And that's probably my favorite. Yeah, you're right. That's a really good one. I always forget about that because he wasn't the primary writer, but it's a really good one. And then he also did, um, I don't think he was the primary writer in it, but Killing Zoe. I don't know if you saw that one. I remember something about that. I don't I, I don't recall what it was about, though. I don't recall what it was about either. I just remember I, I watched it. So I don't know. I mean, clearly it's kind of a forgettable one. But uh, he is one of the writers. And what I do recall is the dialogue was totally Tarantino-esque. Oh, yeah. It was just like, yep. That hallmark is right there. He definitely did do this, but I don't really remember what it was about. It actually could happen. You're like, wait, this is, you know, I can see. Mm-hmm. So my alarm just went off and that means I have to let out Tim's daughter's dog. Oh my gosh. Can you believe it? How, how fast time goes by? I can't believe it. Like it was so fun talking to you. Thanks for taking the time. Next time we have to bring Tim on. So I'm sure we'll have like lots of laughs and more camping stories. Yep. Oh, yeah. You yeah, know, we'll get better here to give him a chance to defend himself. But <laughs> <laughs> That was so much fun. And I'm looking forward to our next conversation over again, us, of course. I'll have all of the links in the show notes for Matt's books, including some selected additional links. So please be sure to check them out. And also, please keep sending in your questions and comments. I read all of them. And if you have a fun, amazing or inspiring story to share, drop me a line. I'd love to talk to you because the world needs more amazing stories. Please take a moment to rate this episode because your ratings really do help move this podcast closer to the top of searches so that my friends and I can reach more people. I'm looking forward to sharing more upcoming In the Company of Friends talks with you. So be sure to follow me on the socials and the dot com, all at the Queen Trail Podcast. That's T H E Q U A I N T R E L E Podcast. I am Silanen, the Queen Trail, and until next time, I wish you passion, adventure, friendship, good conversation, elegance, and beauty.